You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. It's good to see you all here. Beautiful day. Welcome to those of you who are tuning in uh, on the live stream. We are continuing in our series that we have titled Living Jesus Strong in Light of Jesus' Return. It's a series that has been working through uh, Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, and today we come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. Now, these 10 verses uh, deal with um, uh, a big part of your lives, and that is uh, your work. So 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15, if you can turn to that passage, Uh, You can follow along with me. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's printed for you in the worship folder, and you can uh, follow the reading there. This is God's Word. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate." For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, Do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is the inerrant and infallible word uh, of God. Let's pray. Father, you know that work is a big part of our lives. Sometimes that work is hard and burdensome. Always it is necessary. Help us to understand it better so we might work for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, you might be wondering what the relevance of this text is to your life. It's, it's a very specific context. Um, here, a small group within the church in Thessalonica, small group of, of misguided Christians, uh, nearly 2,000 years ago, decide they don't need to work because they think Jesus Christ is returning any moment. 
That's the context. It may not have jumped off the page uh, at you, but if, if you've read the first letter to the Thessalonians, you know that's the issue. Uh, and we know that the return of Jesus Christ has, is a continuing uh, source of, of uh, uh, confusion for the Thessalonians. Uh, so there was this, this group, small group, minority group within, uh, within the church that was saying, uh, be, because Jesus Christ is going to return at any moment, uh, why work? Now, I don't see... Uh, I mean, that, I, that, I realize that, that that might not seem very connected to your life today, but it's, it's, it's really much more, it's, it's not just historical interest. I mean, this kind of error has occurred at various points throughout church history. In fact, uh, it, it happened in, in my time. Some of you might remember uh, th- that during the Jesus movement in the early 1970s, that extraordinary time, uh, a, a time that I, uh, in which I took personal ownership of the, of the faith in which I was brought up, uh, it was not uncommon in, in the Jesus movement days, especially among new converts and especially among younger new converts, right? high school, college age people. Uh, it was not uncommon for them to effectively drop out, right? To, to, to not work or, or uh, it, often to make a decision not to pursue more education, not to go to college, uh, not make short-term sacrifices for a future long-term career. And, and because it was widely believed that Jesus was gonna return at any moment. So why do all those things? Right. And I heard, I heard those things. I actually watched Christians do those things. Now, I don't see it happening today, but I do see a, a a different manifestation of essentially the same error. And, and it's not that today that a minority of Christians don't work, it's, it's that they do shoddy work. Right? It's why people sometimes run the other way when they see an ichthus, you know, that fish sign on a business card or, or on the side uh, of a van. I mean, too many Christians, and I know it's a minority, but, t- but too many Christians have compromised the reputation of the gospel by half-hearted work in the marketplace. And behind that half-hearted work is the same sort of errors that were going on here in Thessalonica. This thinking that, uh, you know, we're gonna, th- this world doesn't matter that much. We're about heaven, right? Jesus is coming back any moment. So what does, it ma- what does this world matter? It's all gonna burn anyway. If, if, you, if you're living with that kind of an attitude, you can see how that might lead to you know, less than excellent work. And among some Christians, it has. And it's all wrong. It, it doesn't, it's not promoting the glory of God. It's not advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's, it's, it's doing uh, just the opposite. So we're gonna draw out today 
I, I realize this, so this, you understand now the specific context, and, and though that specific context may not be ours, there are things that Paul says here, principles that, that are implicit here, that I want to draw out that play into uh, your life uh, at work and your life in the church of Jesus Christ. And, and let me just say uh, in advance here, I mean, I think what Paul is talking about primarily here is, is the kind of work that earns a living, right? He said it, uh, the, the work that, br that brings in money. Uh, and uh, I know there are, of course, that's a, most of us are doing that or a lot of us are doing that, but there are others who are not working for pay. Uh, you might be working in the home uh, to enable another one to work out in the marketplace. Um, you might not be working at all because you're unemployed, and especially in this COVID pandemic environment, uh, a, a number of you, I know, are unemployed or underemployed, and that, of course, isn't the, 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 the context that this is dealing with. But I, so, but I do want to say, you know, if you're working, you know, as a volunteer, if you're working in the home, these principles uh, still apply, even though I'm, I'm really speaking more directly to, uh, to our work that earns us uh, the money that we, uh, by which we support ourselves. So I think there are four principles here. Um, so here we go. We'll just, we'll just go through these principles. Principle number one, um, you live under the lordship of Jesus Christ, which means you are a person under authority. Three times here, uh, Paul uh, in verses 6, 10, and 12 uses the word command. And that may have sounded heavy-handed to you. I think it probably rings a little bit heavy-handed in our ears. Uh, but remember, as we talked about last week, if you were here, Paul is an apostle, right? That's a, very, that's a special office. Uh, it's an office that doesn't exist now. It's an, uh, the, an apostle was, was a hand-picked representative of Jesus Christ. Apostle was someone who received the tradition. He mentions the tradition there in verse six. That a tradition is the, a body of teaching that he received from the Lord Jesus and is tasked with faithfully passing on that body uh, of teaching. So, so though Paul is writing here, it's really Jesus who is commanding, right? It's, it's Paul's just passing on the teachings of Jesus. So it's Jesus who's commanding here. And the commands relate to work. You have to work, you must work, you don't eat if you don't work, uh, and you don't condone not working by uncritical association with Christians who are openly flouting Jesus' command. It's a tough truth, but if Jesus is God, and he is, then he has the right and the authority to issue commands to his people. That sort of goes with being God. We are, 
as people under God, under the lordship of Jesus, people under his authority. I, know, I realize that that's one of the great barriers uh, for some of you uh, to, to uh, come into Christianity because, uh, you know, it's bred into us as Americans to, uh, to resist authority, right? To, uh, uh, to want to be our own authority. That's really the essence of sin, is, right, is, 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 is resisting the authority of God and, 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 and being your own authority. Well, two quick implications of this principle, okay, that, that we uh, are people under authority. Uh, first, it's, that's, this is why it's so important to, to be in a church, whether it's New Life or, an, uh, or another church, where you come under and, and allow the full counsel of God's word, right, the full apostolic testimony about Jesus to speak into your life, to shape your life. There, there are too many professing Christians today who, who are just outright picking and choosing what commands of Jesus they will accept. And let's face it, if that's, if, if that's what's happening, you may, you, admi- you may admire Jesus, you may find him helpful, you may find him a great source of comfort and wisdom, but he is not your God, right? If you're picking and choosing which commands you'll obey, then you are not under his lordship. So it's important to, to be in a place and to, and to make sure you are hearing and coming under and, and, and being confronted with the full counsel of God. Second implication is, and, and this, this one I, 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 you need to hear, this is not talking about, we're not talking here about your salvation. Right? You're coming into a restored, redeemed relationship with God. Jesus is not commanding you to work here so that he will love you and accept you and bring you into his abundant life. That only happens by the work of Jesus. Make sure you understand that. It only happens, salvation, redemption, justification, being ushered into the family of God as a fully adopted, fully accepted, fully loved and embraced human being happens by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ and his work alone. What these commands are about is how a saved person, you, if you're a Christian, now live in the presence of your Savior and your friend Jesus. Okay? All right, that's principle number one. We're, we're under the lordship of Jesus, therefore we're under his authority. Principle number two, your work is important. You know, the Bible does not draw a straight line, friends, or a bright line between 
secular work and sacred work and say that sacred work, church work, uh, is, is what's really important. There's none of that in scriptures and in the scriptures, and there's none of that here in these 10 verses. Did you notice Paul is not commanding people to uh, quit their jobs and go into ministry? He's not telling you that if you really want to do important work, then join him on the mission field. Scripture does not say that, but we often do. Or if we're not saying it, we're thinking it. And it's a source of continuing frustration for me. One of my closest Christian friends, uh, one of the, the oldest guy in our, my accountability group of, of six men that meets um, every other week uh, by phone, uh, he is forever wrongly reminding our group that because I quit my job as a lawyer and became a pastor, that I, among all of the guys in the group, am doing the really important work. And I can't get him off of that. And he's just, he's just wrong. He's dead wrong. And what's ironic is that it's coming from a man who throughout his life in his various secular jobs has been able to directly touch countless people with, with the lives, with the kindness and the love of Jesus. In fact, in, in recent years, in his uh, retirement years, he would take jobs that would allow him to, 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 uh, to pray with people and speak with people and to just love people. He took a job as a, a driver of a tram in the parking lot at Disneyland. You know, he drove uh, an Uber car so he could talk with people and pray with people and just love them. He is, he is able to deal with people uh, that probably would never darken the door of a church. I mean, he's able to deal with people that I would not see me and that I might not see. You know, in many ways, and I feel this acutely, uh, when I believe that the Lord called me into this task uh, of of, of uh, ministry that in, in a very real way it was like if, if you go with a baseball analogy I, I kind of went from the field to the dugout I'm, I'm, I'm you know I'm, I may be a player coach but I'm, I'm largely uh, you know coaching and assisting and enabling you guys who are out on the field to work I mean, your work is, is important and, and, and your work uh, allows you to do what my friend does in, 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 in many ways. It's, it's important because it's not just a task. Your work, whether you're do, doing tax returns or, or painting a home or doing someone's plumbing, or writing a contract, whatever it is, it is your work is a way you reflect God to a watching world. Because the God we worship, the God whose authority we are under, is a working God. Right? When we're introduced to God in Genesis, what are we introduced to? We're introduced into a God who works. 
who takes chaos and brings it into order. He works and then rests and then works. And he created human beings in his image and he created human beings to work. We wrongly often assume that work is part of the curse when sin came into the world. No, work was was part of Eden before human beings sinned. The curse was that work became what it is, what we all know it is. It's, you know, it's work. It's frustrating. It's, it's, it's often difficult. It's sometimes fruitless and non-productive. That happened because of sin. But you are actually very godlike when you are working. It's a way you reflect part of the Imago Dei, the image of God. Your work's also important because it's the normal way that God's provision is mediated to you. Mediated to you and to those you love. I get that from verse 10. You know, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, one of the the petitions there is, give us this day our daily bread, right? And how does God generally answer that prayer? And he, all, he answers it. He faithfully answers it. How does he generally answer it? It's by and through your work, right? You know, how, how does, your, how does your, your daily bread generally come to you? It's through your work. Providing manna from heaven, like God did in the Exodus, is not his normal way of answering that prayer. It's through your work. But it's also important this way. You know, last week we were in the earlier part of chapter three and in verse one there of chapter three, Paul is, is, is asking for prayer about sp- him speaking the gospel, right? He wanted the, 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 the word to be speed out and speed forward and not be hindered by, by uh, the opponents uh, of the gospel. Well, that's, that's speaking the gospel, but now we've, we've sort of switched gears and we're talking about not your speaking, but your working. And your working doesn't speak the gospel, it embodies the gospel. It's how the gospel literally gets fleshed out. Now I know because some I can I can sense the 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 way you're thinking because you're thinking well look there is nothing about my job no matter how conscientiously I'm doing it and excellently I'm doing it no matter how much I'm doing it for the glory of God which we are uh, rec- you know commanded to do uh, there is nothing in my doing work that my work that a- allows people to somehow pick up the gospel from me, right? There's, you know, doing a tax return for somebody doesn't communicate the details of the gospel to them. For the 20 years I practiced law, there wasn't any, really anything inherent in what I did day to day as an attorney that communicated the specifics uh, of the gospel to people. 
But what you're doing, and I, so I get that, but what, what I mean when I say your, God, what your work sort of embodies the gospel is that it, 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 you're creating a context, a platform for a hearing of the gospel, right? Maybe a hearing from you. Maybe it, uh, you're creating a context or a platform where you can speak the gospel into someone's life. Maybe in the future, where, and it's not even you speaking the gospel into that person's life. It's somebody down the road you don't know. You see, this is where I, we, we differ, we should differ from, from St. Francis's maxim, which gets quoted a lot, right? Um, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Right. Well, the, I get, you know, it's a, it's a catchy, catchy little slogan, right? And I, I get what he's saying, I think, but, he's, but there, the, the truth is you can't communicate the gospel without speaking. A communication of the gospel requires speaking. It requires words. I think really what St. Francis was, was saying is be the kind of person who by your work you know, creates uh, that platform, that context in which the gospel, when spoken, can be heard. It can be listened to. It can be taken seriously. See, you, you, by working well, by working, doing your job for the glory of God, you, you're creating a reputation that embellishes the gospel and doesn't tarnish it. By working well, verse eight, you're not being a burden, you're being a blessing. You're contributing to your own well-being, the well-being of your family, the well-being of your church, the well-being of your neighbors, the well-being of your city. I give you an example of what I mean here, um, and and it's uh, and it's from Sinclair Ferguson. Many of you know Sinclair Ferguson, um, wonderful Scottish pastor and theologian. I covet his accent. He could say anything, and you'd believe it. Just he says it in that beautiful Scottish brogue. Sinclair Ferguson was brought to faith in Jesus by a businessman who had been led to Jesus himself by a woman in the typing pool at his office. Now some of you are looking at me like, typing pool? I'm old enough to remember typing pools. Uh, a typing pool is, was essentially a big room uh, full of typewriters and, and typists. And, uh, the, and, and, and that typing pool was, was there to, to type any document that was being generated by, by the office. And man, they, they worked hard. And a typing pool was, bef you know, before the digital revolution, a very important part of law offices, right? Because they're typing out contracts and that kind of thing. Well, this, this businessman noticed one day at his office that there was one woman typist in, in, in particular there uh, in, in the typing pool that produced, that was, that was extra diligent. She produced more and more excellent work than any of the other typists. 
and she intrigued this man, and he began to make inquiries and ultimately discovered that what was behind her, her diligence and her, the excellence in which she pursued her work was the fact that she was a worshiper of Jesus. And, and that intrigued him more, and he began, to, he began to look into that, and it started him on a path that God used ultimately to bring this businessman to faith in Jesus. And then that businessman turned around and was used by God to bring Sinclair Ferguson to faith in Jesus. And then Sinclair Ferguson, in turn, has turned around and touched countless thousands, probably millions, still does, with, with the gospel. And in fact, personally encouraged uh, Linda and me at, uh, over 20 years ago as we considered the call uh, to serve here uh, at New Life. So I have a personal stake in this story, actually. I've been impacted by that woman typist. And to this day, when Sinclair Ferguson lectures and preaches around the world, especially when he's doing it in the UK, he wonders and hopes that he's going to be speaking to and will one day meet the now old woman who by the conscientious way she went about her God-assigned job was responsible for his conversion. Isn't that a great story? And there are millions of those stories. And, and those stories are yours as well. Your work is important. The, the, what's n wonderful about that story is it sort of gives you a glimpse of God's eye view of the importance and the impact of your work, Christians. Right? You, are, you are having an impact that you're probably not even aware of. And hopefully we'll, we will become aware of uh, cer certainly when we uh, come into the Lord's presence. Okay, so that's principle two. Your work's important. Principle three, what you do or don't do always affects other people. That's a very general principle, but it's an important one. What you do and don't do uh, always affects other people. The Christians here that were not working, this minority of, of Christians was putting a burden on the, on the majority of the Christians that were working. Uh, and, and that burden was discouraging them. That's why Paul writes in verse 13, do not grow weary in doing good. He didn't, wouldn't have to write that unless they were in fact growing weary. You could translate the Greek there, don't, do, don't lose heart in doing good or don't be discouraged from doing good. See, the, the minority's sin of, of failing to work was burdening and discouraging their fellow believers. And you know, in our stridently individualistic culture, right? The proud individualism that we honor as Americans, I think it makes us uh, not as sensitive as we need to be about the impact of our sins of commission and our sins of omission on other people. There really are no victimless sins. Now, this is a very general principle. It, it applies way beyond 
right, whether you're working or not working. It, it's, it, it goes to how we speak to one another. It goes to what we say about one another on social media. It, it goes to you know, keeping and losing our patience. It goes to disciplining our children in, in, uh, in thoughtfulness or in anger. Uh, it, it goes, it, 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 you know, it, it goes to being sensitive to whom we might be excluding in our conversations, in our hospitality, in our being neighborly. It goes to our speaking more than listening. What you do believer, good or bad, what you don't do, good or bad, redemptive or sinful, is always going to impact others for good or evil, which leads us right into the fourth and final principle. Principle number four, uh, the church is a family where at its best, and every one of these words actually, I, I chose carefully, the church is a family where at its best, you will get both hard truth and restorative grace. We're a family, and in this family, if we're functioning at our best, you will get hard truth and restorative grace. There's a lot that's hard about this passage, right? Because it it, Paul is, is really applying what we sometimes today call church discipline, right? He's, he's not only applying it in the letter, but he's also exhorting the, the, the non-sinning members of the church to, uh, to um, apply church discipline to these other sinning believers, now, I'm not crazy about the term, term church discipline. I mean, we, we use it, but I think in our ears, it sounds, um, it, it sounds I think, overly negative um, or punitive. And, 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 and church discipline is, is not, we, we think of discipline as punishment. And, and, and the Bible looks at this not so much as punishment as restoration, right? He, he's, Paul is calling out the sin, right? He's calling out the sin of these Christians in no, uh, you know, in unmistakable terms, uh, their, their sin of refusing to work, and then he's instructing these other believers to hold their, those sinning brothers and sisters accountable and to exhort them and counsel them back into repentance and obedience. That's what a church does. It, you know, a church should function in a way like your best friend. Think, think about your best friend. I expect one of the things you can count on from your best friend is to call you out when you're screwing up, right? That's what makes him or her your best friend, right? He or she loves you enough 
and cares enough about you and your life and your welfare not to politely ignore your sin, not to pretend like it's not there, but to confront you with it, to call you out on it. But not just call you out, right? Not, not, it's not, not a condemning finger in your face. That's not what best friends do. It's, it's, it's confronting them with sin and then saying, I'm gonna, co- I will, I will, I'm gonna come alongside you. I will be with you. I'm here to help you repent and obey, get back on track. I hope you have a friend like that. And my hope and prayer is that we will be that kind of people to one another here. It's what a best friend does. I I remember being very proud of my son years ago when he told me after the fact that he had confronted a a good friend of his uh, about a sin. He had really uh, offended uh, another person, hurt another person, and, and, uh, and Jim uh, told his friend, look, you, you need to make this right. You need to go to this person and, and, and rep- apologize and ask for forgiveness and repent. And I know that, but what I re- was really proud of is what he said, I know that's gonna be hard and know it's gonna be awkward and I'm gonna go with you. I'll go with you when you do it. And that happened, Right? That's what friends do. And that's what a family does. And that's what the church of Jesus Christ does. Right? Paul's calling for strong corrective action here, right? No doubt. But look how it's, look how it's balanced by what he says in the last verse, verse 15. Don't regard your sinning brother as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. He's not an enemy. He's your brother. So don't think of him as an enemy. Don't recount him as an enemy. Warn him as your brother. And you don't get rid of brothers, right? You're stuck with them. See, there it is in a nutshell. Hard truth, restorative grace. It's exactly how Jesus dealt with people. And I can tell you when that kind of thing happens here at New Life and it, and it usually happens behind the scenes, you know, it doesn't, it's not something that typically gets played out before the whole congregation. It is hard, it's tough, but it's also wonderful because it's a, it's a lived out reminder that we're in this together, that we're, each, we're helping each other on this road of following Jesus. It's, it's sharing the common knowledge that we're gonna mess up. But when you mess up, we're gonna stoop down and lift each other up because we're brothers and sisters in Jesus. So that's principle four. Let me wrap this up. I mean, and I'm gonna wrap it up simply by saying where you're gonna find the power to do this, the power and the motivation, the desire, the will to do these kinds of things. This is, this is hard stuff, right? To work hard, to work well, to work with excellence, and to keep at it. 
to overcome discouragement, to confront your own sin and its impact on other people, to deal graciously with with the sins of other people that burden you. That's hard. But you'll find the power and the motivation to do it in one person and in one person only. It's the only place you're going to find the power and the motivation and it's in the person of Jesus. Think about it. Jesus worked hard and he worked well. He worked perfectly, in fact. Right? And he and he and he kept at it. He persevered. He was steadfast. Luke says he set his face like flint. He he didn't throw in the towel on us. And think about this. Jesus didn't have to confront his own sin. He had no sin to confront and deal with, but he did confront your sin. But again, not with a wagging finger of condemnation. He confronted you and your sin by doing what? By saying, give it to me. Let, give me your sin. Give me your shame. Let me take that weight. Let me put that burden on my shoulders. Let your sin, let your shame weigh me down. And then he dealt graciously with it and graciously with you by dying with all of that garbage on his shoulders, paying the sin, your sin's penalty and therefore purchasing your forgiveness before God's bar of holy justice. You know, as this week, as I was reflecting on this whole topic of work and our work and its importance. I, I was thinking, as, as James mentioned, about Jesus' work and how that makes all the difference. And I, and I was reminded of what Jesus uh, prayed shortly before his death and resurrection. And, and I'll, 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 close, I'll close with Jesus' words. Um, it's, it's in his prayer recorded in John 17. And he's praying to the Father. And in, in John 17, verse 4, Jesus says this to his Father. Father, I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Friends, that makes all the difference. And with his last breath, Jesus announced the same thing. It is finished. There's nothing more he can do. There's nothing more you can do to be redeemed and in confident, forever contact with the Lord because Jesus finished the work God gave him to do. Amen? Amen. Before I close us in prayer, we're going to take just a couple of minutes again for silent reflection, a time that I hope will allow you to meditate on what the Holy Spirit may have brought home to you today, to apply what the Holy Spirit is saying to you in your own life and heart, and simply to pray. I mean, there's so little silence in our world today, right? Right? 
Um, I'm, I'm even a little intimidated by silence. We're to take two minutes. I need to tell you that how, to show you how intimidated by silence I am, that two minutes feels like an hour to me up here. Uh, but I know, I think if I'm out there, it wouldn't be enough time. So let's just take a couple of minutes and, and, uh, and reflect and pray, and then, and then I'll pray us closed uh, in, in a couple of minutes. Thanks. Father, we thank you for the finished and complete work of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to helpfully reflect on our work and to do it for your glory. Lord, we pray for those who are working hard in the marketplace. We pray for those who are working hard in homes and in volunteer positions. Lord, we pray for those who want to work but can't because of the economy right now. Help us, Lord Jesus, to do our work for your glory because you deserve it and you are enough. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton. Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.